You can go ahead and find 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking at the matter of church, and we're making the case this week that our identity matters. Before I dive into that, uh, just a couple of bits of good news for you. Um, today, a granddaughter church of sorts launches in Waterloo. Uh, we're excited about this addition to the 435 Network. As you know, we planted City Point Church in Urbandale with Pastor Nick Reed, and they have in the last year been working with Jeff Ream, Generations Church in Waterloo, so they're planted in Waterloo, and so I just am really grateful for that and humbled by that. Continue to kind of march towards sending as many people as possible to 100 different outposts, hopefully 25 of those being church plants in Iowa by 2035. We've been talking to some folks in Elkhorn, by the way, about a possible campus there in that rural area and some of the surrounding communities. was chatting with someone from Guttenberg last week. And so will you keep praying for God to keep making us a people ready to reproduce and to multiply? I think that's the heart of our Lord. And so thanks for having that same heart. That is part of our identity as a people of God. And when you think about identity, it no doubt can have a great effect upon your actions. And it should. Uh, things like a social security number, a driver's license number, an address, a passport, they, they help prove who you are. They show your identity in some ways, at least the quantitative aspects of it. And often those very things help you uh, go places, gain access, help you travel, um, even at times purchase items. But when I'm talking about knowing your identity, I'm not speaking today about quantitative aspects. I want us to look at qualitative aspects of our identity. Now, that isn't to say that quantitative aspects aren't important. In fact, I think in our culture, you'll see that they are. There's a pretty big resurgence in the last few years regarding like ancestry DNA stuff. Have you noticed that? You can kind of purchase the vials. There's different companies. You spit into them, send it off in the mail, and they tell you more about where you're from. Jill and I did this a few years ago. Uh, believe it or not, she's a half percent Jewish and I'm half percent African. So I didn't know that, but we got the vials back, read the maps, saw the stats, and okay. So there is some interest in quantitative aspects, but I'm speaking about qualitative aspects of our identity, things that we communicate through language, names, lifestyles, expectations about who we are. I did this um, when our kids were small by saying to them a simple phrase before they would go to school most mornings. It wasn't every single morning or every year, but there were a set of years when they were in elementary school, maybe early middle school. I'd take them over to East Elementary, which is just a block away from our home, or we'd drop them off at Parkview Middle School then. And uh, I'd often just lean over and say, right before I got out of the door, I'd say, hey, remember your last name. Now, it wasn't meant to make them feel arrogant or like they were in a special class. The goal was simply to motivate, motivate them to rest in their identity, that it was a given to them, not to be earned. It was to reassure them of who they were and, in one sense, what that inevitably entailed. They had a last name and five other people were connected to it. So watch out today, right? <laughs> well, there's some equally true aspects of that when it comes to church. Knowing our identity, who we are, is fundamental to knowing what we should do, how we should go about it, and 1 Timothy helps us with that. So you're there already. Put a finger in chapter 3, would you? 
And know this, as we find chapter 3, that Timothy, uh, his first letter, it's, it's a key instruction manual for the church. In fact, the whole subject of the letter is the matter of the church. And so this letter, 1 Timothy, will be our text for all of January. And here's our plan. Each weekend when we gather collectively, we're going to see one crucial element that pertains to the big C church, the universal church. And then in your small groups, you're going to learn and discuss how that element plays out in our local fellowship, what we call the Little C Church. Here it's known as First Family Church. So we're going to be looking at the Big C Church here together in your small groups, the Little C Church. I trust everyone here is in a small group. If you're not, man, uh, join one today. Stop by Connect Center uh, at either of our campuses and get in a small group, at least for January, to learn with us more about the matter of church. So with that in mind, let's look at the key verses in this instruction manual for church. It's 1 Timothy 3, and I believe the key verses are verses 14 to 16. So you put your finger in 1 Timothy 3, you put your eyes on verses 14 to 16. Let me read these for you. I'll actually read just verses 14 and 15, talk about those for a bit, then I'll come and finish up with 16 as we wrap up the message. So that's our plan today. Here's verses 14 and 15. I write these things to you. Paul is speaking here as the author. He's writing to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, maybe Paul here is speaking of an imprisonment. He may just be thinking of the difficulty of travel. You know, he had many shipwrecks, uh, arrests. Maybe he's thinking of just opposition in general. There were many of the Jews who would follow him from town to town and try to make his life miserable. But he was aware that his intention was to probably come from Macedonia over to Ephesus once again and visit Timothy. But he realizes that could be delayed. It may not happen on my timetable. So he says, I have written these things. So this is what he would have told them. But in case he doesn't get there, I'm going to write it for you. Here's what he's writing. He's writing, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And the ought there, in our language, often sounds suggestive as if, here's a good idea. But in the Greek language, it's nothing anywhere near that. It's very mandatory. The word there is necessary. Paul says, Timothy, here's what I'm writing so that you know how necessary it is for people to behave in this manner. And then notice what he says. He says, he's writing so that they know how to conduct themselves in God's household. Circle that. Now he gives in a positive where he further modifies or qualifies or explains, which is the church of the living God. Circle that. And he does it again, a third time, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Guess what you should do with that? You're right, circle it. You've circled three aspects of our identity. I do believe the first one is the primary one. And I think the following two flow out of it. Let me see if I can walk you through these. How Paul here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit identifies the people of God. First of all, he identifies them with the phrase God's household in a familial way. I believe our identity is a very familial identity. In other words... We are God's household, meaning 
we're not a, a building or a structure. Nothing in Paul's mind is envisioning an architectural building with this phrase. He's thinking of a family, a spiritual family. He's thinking of relationship. Now, follow me with um, this train of thought for a moment. This is the primary metaphor used in the New Testament, and I would say the Bible, for God's people. The idea of a family is the most used metaphor. And it's very fitting. God is our Father. He's the begetter, we'll call it that. Christ is our older brother. Hebrews states that. We are brothers and sisters to each other. Those who lead this family in a local sense under the Lord's authority are called elders, kind of gray-haired men, right? I mean, do you see all the family terms given in the Bible for God's household? So it is, first and foremost, a relational family. It isn't primarily occupational. It's not primarily contractual. It's not even primarily organizational. There are many ways to organize a church. There are various ways you can conduct the business of the church. But there's only one way to be in the family of God. It's through Jesus Christ. That is set by God the Father. And so understand that first and foremost, our identity is as a family. God is the Father. Christ is His Son. He's our older brother. We are brothers and sisters to one another. It is a family affair, first and foremost. Now, this idea of a familial identity, it's reinforced with two other aspects. The two other um, phrases Paul gives here. Notice next, he says that the church is the church of the living God. I see this as a formational aspect of our identity. Let me explain that to you a bit and just show you how I got there. You could use some other words, but I like the word formational because of the phrase church of the living God. It's a dynamic, alive, vibrant phrase. He's not saying it's the church of a dead idol. He's saying it's the church of the living God. And I think he's saying this with clear reference to who was the reigning goddess in Ephesus. It was Diana. There was the temple there, and uh, much idol prostitution occurred, and, and wickedness, and, and cultural degradation was no doubt part of their worship. He's saying here, in regards to Diana and other idols that were dead, he says, you are the people, the family, you're the assembly. The word church there means called out ones. You're the ecclesia, you're the assembly of a living God, the living God, and so what's happening is there's something vibrant and dynamic, alive, occurring within this family. God is forming His children. He has breathed life into them, and now He's sanctifying them. He's forming them into His children, into His people. Now, remember Peter in chapter 2 of his first epistle, he called us living stones. Interesting use of words. You don't think about a stone being alive. But Peter said that's what the church is. It's not just a collection of stones. It's really a collection of living stones. There's something dynamic and, and vibrant occurring in the family. Now the question is, how and why does that occur? And the answer is because of the Holy Spirit of God. 
Now remember, the Holy Spirit is the avenue, it's the person of God through which God manifests his power and presence. So when the church began in Acts chapter 2, it was the Holy Spirit that came upon the church and indwelled them. It was God's wind or breath that moved upon the church. When anyone is saved, regenerated, it's God's Holy Spirit that brings life to that person. We do this often at church. We'll say the Holy Spirit blew. The wind of God brought a person to life. That person at that moment is part of the universal church. They're part of God's family. And from that moment forward, God, through His Spirit, begins to sanctify that person. So regeneration, sanctification, all of that occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that happens collectively in a church. So you've got multiple people in the middle of growing as an individual by the power of the Holy Spirit, the wind of God breathing upon them and forming them in this living organism called the church. That's happening across the board individually. It's happening collectively. Our church is being formed as a unit as well as the Holy Spirit works in us and through us and on us as the power and breath and wind of God. That's why this is a very intriguing phrase. We are the church of the living God. And His life is seen in us through His Holy Spirit. And so I think this really refers, again, to a very relational aspect, shows a dynamic aspect that we are being formed both individually and congregationally by God's power. We are a living assembly. Now, this is not hard to think about, these first two, that our identity as a church is both familial and formational. It's not hard to think about or even get a picture of it because this is what your physical family does. When you marry, you come together as a family, then if God gives you kids, you raise those kids. And what those kids are doing in that vibrant, living, dynamic household is growing up and they're being formed. That's what you're doing on a physical level. And watch this. That's what God is doing on a spiritual level. He births spiritual babies through the power of His Holy Spirit. He regenerates lost people. And then He expects them and says to them, okay, I'm going to give you a family now. It's called the church. It's my family. It's my household with brothers and sisters. And I want you to grow up. And so we help each other mature. and We refine one another. And we follow God's leading. And we obey. And we hear God speaking through His Word and His Spirit. And we follow. And together over time, progressively, often very slowly, but for sure, positively, God is forming us into the image of His Son. He's making us more like our older brother. He's making us more like Jesus Christ, His Son. This is what Romans 8, 29 is all about. And God will surely get this done, church. And it happens within His family, His household. So it is a familial identity. It is a formational identity. Notice the last one. Paul says to Timothy that it's God's household. It's the church of the living God. And it's also the pillar of and foundation of the truth. I would say this is a functional aspect of our identity. And I think they flow in this, in this fashion. He establishes first and foremost that God is our Father. It's His family. He's the owner of it, the begetter. We belong to each other and to Him. 
And then He forms us over time by the power of His Spirit to be more like His Son. And then, as we're formed, we know what we should then do. We have a function as part of the family. This, again, is not hard. At some point, all of your children, when they reach a certain age, they had a function. If they don't, you've probably got a spoiled, whiny brat on your hands, right? You should give them functions as they understand that they are being formed to be part of your family. What is the function of the church? Paul describes it as the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is where Paul sees us as a supportive structure. So watch this. He says we are a spiritual family, a living assembly, and a supportive structure. This is somewhat more functional as opposed to relational. I think the first two are very relational. Here he's saying there is some functions. There are some functions that you carry out. There's some things that you do. There's some roles and responsibilities. He sums them up well in this phrase that we're the pillar and foundation of the truth. We are a supportive structure. And can you picture in your mind, and perhaps he even has this temple of Diana in mind again, where there were, I think, seven large pillars that upheld the whole structure. He's saying we don't serve a dead God. We're not part of an idol's family. You're part of the living God's family, and you support His truth. You're a pillar and a foundation for that. Now, Paul is not saying to Timothy here that he uh, invented that truth. He's not saying, hey, find the truth you want to be truth, and then you support that. He's simply saying that, that Timothy is to support God's truth. God is the source of the truth. We are simply the supporters of it. Can we say that again, church? It's God's truth. He's the source. We support it and uphold it. Amen? Now, you may be asking, what's the main truth we uphold and proclaim? Well, that's what I think verse 16 lays out for us. Can I walk you through it as we finish up reading these key verses of the entire book? Look what he says, verse 16. And most certainly, so there's no doubt about what the truth is. That's kind of what's in Paul's head here. With, you know, most certainly, in a guaranteed fashion, the mystery of godliness is great. You'll notice that what he's going to now do is unpack for us the mystery of godliness. Can I just teach you first and foremost in relation to this that the word mystery means an, a progressive unfolding of truth. God's not trying to hide something from you. God's not trying to keep something from you. He has no desire to be in the dark. He, he has communicable attributes. He, he wants to be known. He is known through creation, through His Word, through His Son. So there's nothing about God that's trying to be evasive. He's simply saying He's done this in an incremental, progressive fashion. If you're with me, kind of nod your head. The Old Testament, the New Testament, we often say this, the Old Testament is Christ concealed, the New is Christ revealed. But God had a plan in mind from before the foundation of the world to bring uh, uh, into the world the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so He revealed this incrementally. That's what the word mystery is. And notice how this mystery of godliness is all about Christ. This is the, the uh, core of our truth. This is what we're to uphold. Can I use this word? This is what we're to pillarize. This is what we're to support. Look at it with me. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, 
believed on in the world and taken up in glory. You may be asking, well, Todd, who is the he? He just jumps right to this pronoun. Are we to assume it's God? Well, it is a safe assumption, first of all, because it's the mystery of godliness, right? So he's going to, now he's speaking about, about God's work. But I would say to you, just on a very technical level, and for those who love the weeds, you'll like these next 60 seconds. The word he there is a pronoun. In some manuscripts, it is the word theos. And there is some debate about um, which has the most support, what's the most credible. Um, I won't go into that in this um, moment, except to say this. The word he uh, does refer to Christ, who was God in the flesh. So even like in the King James, if you translate this God, you still end up at the same place that God was manifest in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ, right? So some translators felt like, well, it's really just a, an abbreviated, shortened version of God to kind of substitute as a pronoun. Either way, you end up in the same place. If God was manifest in the flesh, as John 1 says he was, then that's Jesus Christ. And so here he's giving us this um, unfolding, incrementally revealed um, truth that God has given to mankind. And it's this here, that Jesus Christ, that God that Christ the Messiah was manifest in the flesh. He was seen, the incarnation. He was vindicated in the Spirit, probably speaking of His baptism and resurrection. He was seen by angels. This again, maybe His temptation in the wilderness. Maybe referencing things about His birth. He was preached among the nations. This is His ministry for three years in which uh, Jew and Gentile heard the gospel. He was believed on in the world. So there were literal uh, space and time people who heard and saw him and believed. They trusted what he said. And then he was taken up in glory. This is ascension. This is the truth about Christ. This is the gospel. The, the uh, flesh and blood, time and space, historical reality of the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of godliness. Church, catch this. This is what we're to support and uphold. The truth about who Jesus Christ was and what he did and the veracity and can I use the word believability of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. It is the core of what we believe. And so this is what we support. In no uncertain terms, when it comes to God's truth as revealed in Jesus Christ, listen very carefully, church. You have a load-bearing responsibility. Collectively, we are the pillar and foundation for this. We don't give ground. We don't negotiate. We remain polite and compassionate, but we keep a strong spine with a big smile. Amen? We're not negotiating. We're not going to the table to bargain about who Jesus was. We support it. You have a load-bearing responsibility. This is what pastors do as well. You know, the book's written to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus. So I do think he's instructing the church in general. But I think he's kind of pointing his letter to Timothy saying, Timothy, lead your people to live a life that's supportive and upholding the truth about who Jesus Christ is, the mystery of godliness. And there are times I, um, and I don't want to sound arrogant or proud here. God knows I'm in 
in the middle of deep sanctification along with all of you, okay? But sometimes I'm with pastors and, and the, the prominent talk is what the Harvard Business Review says about growth or what the Wall Street Journal would say or what the latest book by some business guru would recommend. And I've read some of those. When I was doing my PhD, I read more Harvard reviews than I want to admit, I think, sometimes. And there's just a lot of those books that I think have some insight into cultural dynamics that can be helpful. But can I say to you, pastors are first and foremost theologians. We need to know the truth about Jesus and teach our people the truth about Jesus. Are you with me? We have in our church very good, solid businessmen and women. And I'm thankful they handled the bulk of that in our church. Our elders deal with that maybe more in a in an advisory way, and like in an in a, in improving way. Like we get the recommendations, we pray through those things, we are aware of those, we want to be responsible for them. But, but let's be frank, our elders are first and foremost concerned with, are we believing the right way? Because church, hear this, every issue is at its core a theological issue. Every issue. It always comes back to what you believe. And that's why pastors, first and foremost, in just... Hear my heart on this. We are humble shepherds. We're not rising stars or celebrities. We're gray-haired elders, not elitist in some ivory tower. We're pastors, not business professionals. God's given us good businessmen and women. Let's utilize them, and then let's do our job of making sure the church stays as a pillar and support of the truth about who Jesus is and what he did. Because church, listen, this is the main message of the church. The main message is theological. It's not social. It's not cultural. It's not political. It's not medical. It's not technological. Are there times that we will lean into some political things, social issues, medical situations? Sure we can. We can bring God's word to bear on every issue. But remember, it's bringing God's truth to bear upon that, not my opinion or yours. And so pastors, elders, the church must know what it believes about Jesus, about the gospel. And then we, we let that inform every other issue. So I say to you again, without apology, and I don't think I have to apologize in this room for sure, but I want to say to you with great clarity, every issue is actually a theological issue. Let's see what God says, and let's make our decisions after that. You have that load-bearing responsibility to know what we believe. This is why I think it's interesting that sometimes, and I don't think I've had this happen but once or twice. It mainly happened a few years ago when we made some shifts in how you could join First Family as a member. We ask you to agree to our beliefs. I think maybe one person said, do we have to agree with every single thing? The answer is yes, our core beliefs you do. There's nine of them. You'll find out about them in our manuals, our journals, and in your small group. There's nine of them. You have to say, I agree with them to be a member here. Why? Because as a church, one of the aspects of our identity is we are a pillar and foundation of God's truth. Now, there's second and third level issues. There's preference matters we can disagree on and be great friends. But when it comes to the core doctrines of who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, who really belongs in the church as far as regenerate membership and true conversion. and uh, yeah, 
to say you belong to First Family, you need to say, I believe those things because that's what we do because of who we are. Can somebody say amen? So don't be surprised when you go to a new member's class and they ask you, do you agree with our beliefs? That's not a weird thing to ask those who want to identify with a pillar and foundation of the truth, church. It should be expected, actually. If we didn't ask you that, you should say, hey, are we missing something here? Isn't this one of the aspects of our identity to support and uphold God's truth? So you'll find out what we believe in that class. We ask you to agree to it because we have a functional aspect of our identity. So do you see the three words? Just kind of say them with me briefly. Our identity is familial, it's formational, and it's functional. The three phrases in this verse we draw this from, God's household, the church of the living God, and the pillar and foundation of the truth. We are a spiritual family, we are a living assembly, and we are a supportive structure. Now, not surprising, each of these aspects comes back to God. It's His family. He's the father of it. It's His truth. It's His Holy Spirit giving life. Does this make sense? Like, it always comes back to God. So as we think about our identity... Listen very carefully. And who we are, I think it's more accurate, and I would say even necessary to say this. It's not just who we are, it's whose we are. Because every one of these aspects comes back to God. We rest our identity in our Trinitarian God. And so the best summarizing take-home truth today, while we think about who we are, is to say honestly and humbly that who we are rests on whose we are. And to bring your identity back to God and the mystery of godliness that he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached on among the nations, believed on, taken up into glory. Yes, this is where we stand. This is what we believe. And this kind of focus allows every believer here to embrace and enjoy functions and actions for the right reason. This settles the issues of motivation and authority. We're not trying to earn anything or usurp anything. We're simply enjoying who we are first. And then that, the fact that we're part of God's family by His grace, it fuels all that we then do. So will you say this simple take-home truth with me as we think about our identity? Together, church, who we are rests on whose we are. As you ponder that statement, let me share with you something that crossed my mind this week several times. As I mulled it over as well and thought about the beauty of these three verses, I recalled the number of times I would hear while growing up this complimentary phrase, though at times when I was young I didn't hear it that way. But I'd hear this phrase a lot, oh, you're Roger's boy. Oh, you're Betty's son. I usually heard that when I would meet someone new at church or at school. Maybe I was filling out a form for a resource at church. I worked for our home church once I graduated from uh, high school as a, as a sophomore in college, and I got a job as a junior high youth pastor there, so I would reserve rooms or resources. And so sometimes filling paperwork out, uh, they would connect the last name. Even sometimes in our community, 
my parents had interaction at times, they would see my last name and say, oh, and they would say this phrase, oh, you're Roger's boy. Oh, you're Betty's son. Now, mind you, this was always a good thing for me. Um, there was something about that identity that mattered. In other words, who I belonged to mattered. And it mattered increasingly in all the right ways as I grew older. And to be frank with you, and I don't think you're surprised to hear this, I still find that to be true. There's times currently when I'll run into people, whether in person or, or usually online, who will realize they've known my parents, and they'll say, oh, you're Roger's boy. I'm 58, right? Oh, you're Roger's boy. You're Betty's son. I get a chuckle out of that, but can I just share with you, unquestionably, I thank the Lord for the gift of my earthly identity, the heritage given to me through my parents. I thank God for it every single day. It was a gift. It was a relationship first and foremost. And it was necessary to understand that relationship because it helped me understand roles and responsibility. That identity was something that, that was instilled in me relationally and then functionally. But here's what I thank God more for my spiritual identity. That it is first and foremost a relational identity. That God sought me and bought me and through the work of His Son on the cross purchased me unto Himself and put me into His family. Not by my works, not by my doing, but by His grace. And now that familial identity and this formational relationship where God is sanctifying me and working in me. It has a functional aspect as well. I have roles and responsibilities. And so belonging to God gives me confidence in how I should function and in the fact that I am being formed. This is part of our spiritual identity. This is what we're known as. This is what it means to be in His church. That you're part of His family you are being formed by a spirit, and you have functions, you have obedience as part of that. So what do you say this week, church? We live like the people of God. What do you say we remember our last name spiritually? What do you say when we're out in our community and with people, oh, you're the heavenly father's son. Oh, you're the heavenly father's daughter. Let us think in terms of our identity spiritually so that we're functioning and being formed into His people, the church. I'm going to ask you if you would to bow your heads with me for a few moments. And while I'm aware that most of you right now are thinking about these three aspects of your identity in relation to the Father, I also know there may be some who would say, Todd, I don't even have a relationship with God. I've heard you spend most of the time talking to believers about their identity as a spiritual member of this church. And it begins with this relationship. It begins with being in the family. But Todd, I, I don't even have a relationship with God, the Father. Well, since the matter of church is first and foremost a relational one, we are an organism first, not an organization. 
Let me ask you, would you this morning be willing to surrender your life to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son and begin a relationship with Him? Would that be your prayer? Would that be your desire? Right now, perhaps you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit. God is drawing you, and in this moment, His Spirit wants to breathe on you, and, 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 and the wind of God wants to blow over you so that you are part of His family. If that's you this morning, I would invite you right now just to say or to pray something along these lines, that the posture of your heart would, would echo this kind of prayer. God, I'm away from you. I'm lost. I'm not reconciled to you, but I desire to be. My heart wants to belong to your family. So God, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son and my savior. And I place faith in him as the only way to be saved from my sin. I believe Jesus died, was buried, and was raised again. And only through Jesus' work can I be forgiven of my sins and made right with you. So God, would you through Jesus do for me and in me what I can't do for myself? And that kind of prayer, believing in Jesus as the substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, as your Savior and God's Son, as the only way to be saved, it's your response to the blowing of God's Holy Spirit on your life. It's the moment of regeneration and conversion. And it makes you part of God's family, the church. It opens the door to all kinds of formation and changes that need to occur, a living relationship. And it gives you something to live for way beyond just your bank account or your address or your retirement. It helps you function with the most important things in view, eternal matters.